Take your Bibles and go with me back to Colossians chapter 1 this evening. Colossians 1. I began this morning just walking you through what it's like when you go for a checkup. Uh, go to the doctor, uh, some other medical professional. We'll switch venues uh, to one that's maybe a little less personal or uncomfortable and uh, talk about what it's like when you take your car in for repair uh, or maybe an oil change or maybe inspection. Um, and I don't know how that goes for you, but often uh, when that occurs for me, uh, I end up with a longer list than what I went in to take care of. Uh, because as we dropped the car off at the shop, they just they were really kind people, um, really wanted to take care of us, and they did a courtesy 10-point inspection and said recommended, recommended, need to do, and it's all even color-coded, like, you know, green, this is okay, we like green. Um, yellow, you know, hey, this is something just to put on your radar. Red, you need to do this now. And uh, you walk away with this list. And it's like, I just wanted the oil changed. And uh, now I have $1,100 in recommended repairs or whatever it ends up being uh, when you go each time to get your car checked. Uh, you may feel a little bit like that as we walk through this morning and perhaps again tonight. I hope that's not the case. But you say, Pastor, I came to church to, to see some of the people I love at church or I came to church hoping to find encouragement here. I came to church just hoping that God would bless me through the music. And I hope all of those things are true. I don't want to undermine or minimize any of those. But along the way, when we look at a text like this one, these five thoughts come out. And it's like, you know, Lord, would you challenge me? Would you challenge us? So that through your word, we see where we need to grow. In fact, I'll just point you ahead again next week when we look at Paul's actual prayer, he's going to pray for them that they would be growing and that they would be walking worthy of their salvation in Christ. And he's going to spell out what that looks like. And it means for us, again, that assessment where we go, all right, Lord, where do I need to grow now? This morning, we began looking at the first two of five actions of the gospel we said first, the gospel establishes a unique bond, and I hope you see that in your life where you realize there are all sorts of relationships and connections maybe present within our church, hopefully present beyond our church, uh, that you say, you know, I would never have this relationship if it weren't for Jesus Christ. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his work of love. In fact, one of you came up was talking to me afterwards who had just recently read the Beckman's most recent prayer letter about trying to get to Thailand and not being able to get to Thailand because of uh, COVID tests and all of that that's going on for them. You know, that's a relationship that we have because of Jesus Christ. And I hope in your own life you look and say, you know, I have a close relationship or I have a deep appreciation for because of the gospel. The gospel's established a unique bond. But then secondly, we looked at this idea that the gospel also evokes grateful praise, where we turn to God and actually do say, God, thank you for these people. Paul does that for these believers here. He says, every time we pray, while we're praying, always praying for you, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This evening, we want to look at three additional thoughts as we work our way through uh, verses 4 through 8. Look with me with, at the text again. Verse 3, we read, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, 
for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Where have you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. We begin picking back up in verse 4. We want to look at this third action of the gospel. The gospel expects growing faith. The gospel expects growing faith. And as we look at how that is spelled out there in verse 4, I'll just note up front for you that it happens both personally and universally, we can say, within the text. We see it first to say the gospel had been received personally by these believers. Paul says, we've heard about you guys and how you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's almost as though Paul's saying, we've heard that you've heard. Verse 4, we heard. End of verse 5, you heard. End of verse 6, since the day you heard. They've heard this message. It gets described as the gospel, the word of truth. It just gets described as of his grace. And he says, you have heard this. You put your faith in this. And now it's been reported to us that you have believed personally. Again, just a simple reminder for us that all faith does begin with hearing. It's Romans 10, 17, familiar verse to most, if not all, to say, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You know Christ as Savior, there's a point where you heard the gospel, you heard the truth that you were a sinner, that Christ had died for your sins and overcome the grave and rose again, and you chose to put your faith in him and be saved. Paul's rejoicing and praying in part because he knows these believers have personally responded to the message. They've personally put their faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one who saved them. And it's important that we don't miss it. You'll hear it time and time again as we study Colossians, that Christ is the one who has completed them. Christ is the one who has satisfied them. It is not that they need something else or something more. And so Paul says, we've heard your faith is in Christ Jesus. As he talks about that, though, in the verses that we're looking at this evening, notice that he points to the absolute truth of the gospel. There are two thoughts we want to see as he talks about they'd personally received Christ by faith. First, he points to the absolute truth of the gospel. You look at verse 5, whereof he heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. He's like, you heard this word He describes it particularly as a word that is truth, and then he also attaches to it this idea of it's good news, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once again, I'd call you to mind where we were last Sunday night and remind you what these people are being bombarded with. There's a deeper knowledge out there. There's something more to hear out there. You just need to know something more, and he's cautioning them against that in this letter. To be on guard, as we saw in Philippians 2, or Philippians, Colossians 2, verse 8. Beware, lest any man spoil through you through philosophy or vain deceit, after the root traditions of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. He's like, we've heard of your faith in Christ. You received the word of the truth of the gospel. It is enough. It is the absolute truth that they had received. And once again, I just remind you and me, that that is what we have in God's Word. We don't go looking for more. We live in a day where it is about opinion. It is about personal experience. It is about feelings. 
Well, I just feel this way. Well, others this way. Well, don't you think? And frankly, what I think, what you think, doesn't really matter apart from what God has said. We want to point to truth, the truth of God's word, particularly the truth of the gospel. I think Andrew even referenced it this morning as he was making his announcement in the school about the school. We live in a post-truth world. Truth isn't knowable. Truth's not discoverable. You can't figure it out, so don't try. And as Christians, you must be committed to something different. We must be committed to something different. Actual words that give truth. You know, even again, I was talking to Melinda about something that had come through my email this week that was just noting the need to change teaching methods and communication methods. You know, as much as it might be nice if we could say, well, play the video for this Bible story. Really, the reality is God gave us his truth in what? Words, not images. He could have, not videos. He could have. So we're committed to something very simple that we gather to do tonight you know, one of our core values, if we will, if you will, as a church, is that we be word-centered. It is in our name, Bible Baptist Church. It's not, well, what is the tradition? It's what does the word say? What does the Bible say? What does the text say? So that it's very clear, it's very precise. Here, Paul's able to point the Colossian believers and say, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus because you heard the word of the truth of the gospel. You've gotten absolute truth. But he also describes their personal reception not just as absolute truth, but also as undeserved goodness in the gospel. Undeserved goodness. If you look at the end of verse 6, he says, Since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. It's that unique facet that Jesus exemplified personally that also is displayed in the gospel, where when you look at the gospel, here's truth, but here's goodness. Here's truth, but here's grace. Paul continues to point to their faith in the gospel as faith in the truth, but also saying it is the grace of God that you've received in truth. It's God's undeserved goodness to you. Something that we need to be careful not to take for granted. We touched last week those, that opening greeting, if you will, in verse 2, where he tells these believers, grace be unto you in peace. Would God send you his undeserved goodness in life, and would he bring you complete wholeness or peace in life as well? So Paul, as he begins to say, we've heard that you've put your faith personally there, says you've believed in absolute truth and you've received undeserved goodness. And I would remind each of us, if you know Christ as Savior, the same is true in your life and mine. It is what we benefit from to say God's given me truth and God has shown me grace. And it's what we extend to others also. We don't simply extend to them truth without grace, nor do we simply extend to them grace without truth. It is both as both are made clear in the text. So we continue looking at the idea that the gospel had been received personally. We want to see, secondly, that the gospel had also been working universally. I said, uh, the gospel effects this growing faith, this faith that continues on, that grows bigger. It's working not just personally, but universally through the world. Look at verse 6. It, was, it has come unto you, Colossians, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, and it doth also in you. Yes, the gospel was at work in their midst, 
But it was much bigger than that. It was working worldwide. Again, it's one of those things that either with familiarity of the Bible or the world in which we live, we may miss the reality. Okay? Think about living in the first century. Like the great accomplishment of Rome that we talk about still is this Roman road system. Right? We complain about our roads the way they are. Uh, imagine their day where they're trying to be able to travel city to city and go, hey, look, the Roman road system. And yet they're not saying, well, you know what, tomorrow I can just fly over there and be there in a matter of hours. It's all good. Or even better yet, I can just shoot a message digitally. Or even better yet, I can just video chat because we all are pros at that after the last year, right? That's not their day. And yet what Paul is saying is mind-blowing here. You guys have heard the gospel. You've heard the word of the truth. And the reality is it's gone through the known world. In just a matter of a couple decades, the gospel had spread everywhere. It was expanding and ever-moving. We studied through Acts uh, the previous two years and saw here again with just a, a small group of people praying in the upper room in Acts 1. And by the end, we have gone to the uttermost parts of the earth fulfilling Acts 1.8. It points to the supernatural work of God in spreading his word, but it also points to the faithfulness of God in fulfilling the words of Jesus Christ. I love that truth in Matthew 16.18. We don't want to lose sight of it in our day. We don't want to minimize it in light of our experience. But to understand, Christ said he will build his church. He will. It's unstoppable. It's inviolable. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That same truth is at work in our day. The gospel still does affect ongoing faith. You know, how do we build our faith personally when we're struggling? We look at Christ. We've been talking about that on Wednesday nights in Hebrews 12. But how do we also see others come to believe? We present them the truth and the grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our calling is to be faithful. God, on the other hand, makes the gospel fruitful. Right? Our calling is to be faithful, but God is the one who makes the gospel fruitful. And as we're looking here, we're reminded the gospel does effect ongoing faith. Fourth, we've said the gospel establishes a unique bond. It evokes grateful prayer. It exhibits growing faith, but it also exhibits, fourth, exceptional love. Come to verse 4, it says, I've not just heard of your faith in Christ, but I've also heard of the love which ye have to all the saints. I won't take the time to turn there, but if you think with me about the familiar words in James chapter 2, we're reminded that we cannot have faith without works. Faith without works is dead. There's to be, yes, I've put my faith. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves does bring out of it works, and the chief of those works is our love. In fact, it came up again in our Sunday school class this morning in 1 John chapter 4. You remember the familiar words there in verse 7? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Paul can look at these Colossian believers and say, I heard of your faith, and you know what was with that faith? You had love for all the saints. It just came out of the belief that you had put in Christ because that is the right response. It's what Jesus himself taught there in John 13. It was probably three months ago that we looked at this. 
where in John 13, 34 and 35, at the Last Supper, he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that as I have loved you, you should love one another. By this shall all men know. Everybody's going to know you're a follower of mine by the love which you have for one another. Again, think about it this way. I pointed this out briefly this morning, but there's this triad that occasionally shows up in the New Testament, faith, hope, love, right? It's here in the text, verse 4, faith, verse 4, love, verse 5, hope. We'll get to hope in a moment. That same triad also ends 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, where he spent all this time defining love, having said, okay, yes, desire spiritual gifts, but I'm going to show you an even more excellent way. He begins to expound by the Spirit of God, here's what Christian love ought to be. And then he says this, now abide at these three, faith, hope, and charity, or faith, hope, and love. And yet, what does he say? The greatest is faith. No, right? The greatest is love. It is to be showing up in my life and yours where there is this exceptional, exceptional, not like, oh yeah, my neighbors are really caring people too. No, there's this exceptional love that comes out of us. A couple quick thoughts about this love as we look at the gospel exhibiting exceptional love. First, it's continual in its practice. This word have is in the present tense. In other words, it is the love which you are having. It's habitual. It's continual in its practice. Secondly, it's sacrificial in its effort. The word for love here is agape love. It's that volitional choice that says, I'm going to do what's better for somebody else than for myself, even at the expense of myself. It's the love best exemplified by our Savior, Jesus Christ. But here he says, I I hear that you have, in a continual way, this sacrificial love. But then catch the statement that comes at the end of this verse, or at the end of this section. It is also universal towards believers. It's not just continual in its practice or sacrificial in its effort. It is universal towards believers. You have this to all the saints. That's a big word. We happen to believe verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible, right? We like every word matters. Don't miss the all. I mean, could that be said of me, of you, of us, where it's like, you know what? I know you. You love all the believers. Because the reality is some of us are hard to love, right? We're honest. You don't have to respond too much visually or verbally. Okay? But it points to the fact this is exceptional. It's not exclusive or restrictive. It's universally applied. You have this love towards all. It ought to challenge and call us as we head into another week to say, Lord, would you use me, not for me, but to show your love to everybody around me this week? That will be a work of grace. It will be. This love is continual in its practice, it's sacrificial in its effort, it's universal towards believers, and then I would just remind you, we've already said this, but it's supernatural in its enablement. It is something that God does in us. In fact, I believe you see that in the text in verse 8, echoing what Epaphras has reported back to Paul, it says, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Here's what the Spirit of God has done in you. It is part of the fruit that the Spirit bears, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and following, particularly verse 22. 
but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Because when God's working in us, love has to, has to, has to come out of us. Love that is sacrificial, that is continual, that is universal because it's supernaturally inspired, driven. It's a love that transcends what is commonly present in society around us. Again, I pointed you to this this morning, but flip over with me, if you would, for just a moment to Colossians 3. He told him in verse 10 what we looked at this morning to say, uh, you've put on the new man, it's after Jesus Christ, and so all of these things that used to divide us, whether it be ethnicity or culture, whether it be economics or job position, he's like, all of those things are done in Christ because you have this new man. But then he says this in verse 12, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. I mean, there's lots of love packed into those words in many different ways, ways we don't necessarily say. Right? I, I was out at a conference recently. Some of you uh, know that. and uh, I don't know if it was this text or another one was talking about the idea of bowels of love in the Bible. And it's like, put that on your Valentine card, right? Man, that's just not the way we talk. But it is saying, guys, all these divisions are broken down, so put on love for one another. And just so we don't miss it, you really want to catch the next verse where we left off reading. You look there at verse 14. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. You know what is the most ideal, most mature expression of Christianity? When it's marked by an exceptional love, a priority of love. So I'd ask you, does exceptional love show up in your life? Because the gospel has changed your life. How will it show up this week in your home, in our church? Might not be with believers, but it also even ought to be present maybe at work or in your neighborhood to love as you've been loved by your Savior. The gospel establishes a unique bond. It evokes grateful prayer. It affects growing faith. It exhibits exceptional love. And then finally, as we return to verse 5, the gospel ensures a glorious future. The gospel ensures a glorious future. Christianity, at its core, is based on hope. It's not based on wishful thinking, right? I hope we have ice cream when we get home tonight. That was last night, probably not tonight, right? It's wishful thinking for tonight, okay? That's not what we mean when we say Christianity is based on hope. Rather, it's this confident expectation. It's grounded in the promises of God. That's clearly in view in what we've worked through because he said, you've believed what? The word of the truth. You've believed the gospel. You believe the truth of the grace of God. Here's the promises that God has made. You've believed them. You've got a confident expectation in them. And so in verse 5, he says, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. You've believed that hope. And we could ask it this way. What expectations are driving life for us right now? 
right? We all, we all deal with this. In fact, I mentioned it this morning with our uh, missionary church planner that was in last Sunday. Asked him at lunch, what expectations would you have of us and what should we have of you? Because we're constantly working through that in all kinds of relationships. You could look at your job and say, I have the expectation of uh, a promotion. I hope that with that is, it maybe comes a raise, or I have the expectation of a better relationship, or I have the expectation of the hope of retirement, or I have the expectation of obedient children, or I have this expectation that this week will be better than last week, or I have this expectation that maybe I'll feel a little bit better. You know, we go through life with all of these things, and Paul's reminding us that we have this far greater, confident expectation this hope of a glorious future. Again, I said a moment ago that uh, hope is at the foundation of Christianity, this hope of a future. It is what gets echoed is uh, Paul in the epistle of Romans, in Romans 4, is going to say that salvation is by faith, whether you look at David and his expectation, his hope, or you look at Abraham and his expectation and his hope, is what we saw just kind of surveying through Hebrews chapter 11 with all of these different individuals who, here's their faith, here's their faith. They have this expectation in God, right? I love the example of Abraham, right, there in uh, Romans chapter 4, who has this expectation. God said, so I'm believing, period. God said, so I'm believing, period. Does he fail along the way? He does. He shows his humanity like we do. But Romans 4 says it this way, his body was as good as dead, Yet he, against hope, believed in hope. It's like, this is illogical. Abraham, this is nuts. But he still believed. And God kept his word. God fulfilled his promise. You could think about it in terms of Hebrews chapter 11, where we were a while back on Wednesday nights, right? The familiar words of verse 6. Without that faith, it is impossible to please him. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Why? I hope these are drilled into your mind. There's two reasons why. One, you have to believe that God is. He exists. If we don't believe that, we're in trouble. We're already off. So without faith, it's impossible to please him. You have to believe God is, he exists. And secondly, that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That it's worth it. God exists and God rewards It's that simple. God exists and God rewards. So I will believe because without that faith, I can't please him. I will believe that he exists. I will believe that he rewards. Here we're told that they have their faith in Christ. And so there is a hope which is laid up for them in heaven. That's what they're living for. This hope laid up in heaven. This word laid up is an interesting one. It means to put away for safekeeping to reserve, to secure, right? It's like when there's that special box of cookies or candy at your house and you don't want little fingers to take them. It gets secured, reserved, right? I was thinking back while I was prepping this week for whatever reason about when uh, I had Melinda's engagement ring before I proposed. I'm in a college dorm. What do you do with that? Like, how do you take care of that? I probably, there's probably like a safe or something. I'm like, nope, go in the bathroom in the dorm, pop the ceiling tile, set it on top. Like, nobody found it, right? Maybe that was a bad idea. 
but it was secured. It was set aside. It's right there. Far more importantly, right, for a believer, God has secured. He's laid up. He's protected a home in heaven that is absolutely for sure. It cannot be taken away. It is what Jesus foretold again in our study in John chapter 14. I am going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. It's what 2 Peter testifies to, to say it is kept. You have this inheritance, incorrupt, undefiled, fadeth away, reserved or kept in heaven for you. I mean, there's all these descriptions like here's what awaits. There is this hope. I would encourage you in the midst of the circumstances of your day, the pressures of the week that are in front of you, the stress of life that may sit on you, to be reminded that the gospel gives you an expectation that will not fail. You can put expectations in people and be utterly disappointed. You can put expectations on how your week will look. And if your experience is like mine, you'll be utterly disappointed. You go, man, didn't nearly get done as much as I would have liked. But you know, when it comes to our expectation or our hope in God, there is a glorious future that is not taken away. It's laid up. It's secured. It's kept in heaven for you. So we walk into the week that's in front of us. I would zero you in on these five actions of the gospel. It establishes a unique bond between believers, whether they live in the same place or not. It ought to evoke grateful praise out of us where we pray and thank God for the people he's brought into our lives. It ought to affect ongoing faith. Lord, I want to keep believing and living, but I also want to see others believe also. It also then ought to exhibit from us an exceptional love, an exceptional love. Others are, they don't understand, they can't grasp. And then finally, it expects a glorious future. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are privileged and humbled that you have entrusted us with your word. Even as we saw tonight, when we come to your word, we're reminded that it is absolute truth. In a world where so many things seem to be shifting, so many things seem to be up for grabs, so many questions are out there, we thank you for entrusting us with the truth of your word. But Lord, we're also just incredibly humbled that you've shown us this grace, this unmerited goodness and favor towards us. Lord, I pray that we would be good stewards of that grace, seeking to extend it to others as well. Lord, I pray particularly for the thoughts that we've looked at tonight, that you would strengthen faith of believers here in this room, use us to see others come to faith as well. Lord, I pray that also we'd be marked by love that can only be explained by your grace also, a love that isn't restrictive but is shown to all. And then finally, Lord, we're thankful for the hope, this expectation that we can have of a future with you. May that drive us to be faithful through yet another week. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.